Are you enjoying BL Norris's The Heritage? Be sure to follow the podcast and leave a positive review and spread the word about the podcasts. Without further ado, please enjoy the latest episode of The Herit Gauge. Adam waltzed into his office and slumped into the plush chair behind his desk. His large corner office boasted navy blue and mahogany decor, adorned with sports memorabilia on every wall, except for the expansive glass wall behind him, providing an exceptional view of the city below. You lead a charm life, Adam grinned at his reflection in the tiny mirror on his desk. He powered up his PC and commenced one of his most urgent tasks of the day, playing a game of solitaire. Five minutes into the game, just as he was about to place his victory card, there was a tentative knock on his door. Come in, Adam said, placing his final card and watching the deck of cards spring across his computer screen in a victorious domino effect. Excuse me? Adam looked up to find his new executive assistant standing in the doorway. She had only been with him for three weeks and was already smitten by his charm. Adam's father had transferred his previous assistant to another department, claiming she was a distraction to Adam's work. The real reason for her swift removal was that she had become pregnant, and Papa Maitland wasn't about to let an illegitimate child ruin his family's carefully crafted reputation. He had given her $25,000 and arranged for an abortion. Adam couldn't have cared less. He was just getting started. Come in. Adam smiled, motioning the young woman closer. I won't bite. Biting was precisely what he had in mind. She was absolutely exquisite. Her measurements were approximately 36 to 2436, with looks that could rival any supermodel. Adam was determined to add her to his list of beauties. I've brought your mail. She smiled shyly. Adam estimated her age at around 22. She stood at approximately 5'8", with blonde hair and brown eyes. Her resume stated she had a degree from the University of Texas, but he guessed she probably spent more time giving favors to professors than earning a degree. Thank you. Adam took the mail from her, making sure to brush his fingers across her hand. He had read somewhere that women concentrated a lot on the little things. Make some small incidental contact and they would spend their entire day wondering if it was done on purpose or not. Adam smiled to himself. Hey, Rita. It's Renee, she corrected. Adam waved off the correction. You want to have dinner sometime? Renee practically jumped up and down. Yep, Adam mused. She had dollar signs in her eyes. I would love to, she said, clasping her hands together. What do you say I pick you up around eight? Sure, she beamed, keeping her eyes on him as she backed out of the office. Adam couldn't help but smile. She was going to be easy pickings. He returned his attention to a fresh game of solitaire when his father knocked once on his office door, then entered without invitation. Adam. Isaac James Montgomery Maitland stood stiffly in front of his son's desk. Isaac Maitland and his eldest son were polar opposites. With aristocratic good looks and a detached personality, the father lacked the warmth and charisma of his son. He was calculating, methodical, while Adam was passionate, 
and impulsive. Good morning, father. Adam smiled. He subtly reached for the mouse and minimized his game of solitaire. What can I do for you this morning? Isaac stared down the length of his aquiline nose at the uncluttered surface of his son's desk. I see you've been busy, he stated, circling around the desk. He picked up the magazine the receptionist had brought in with the mail. America's new sexiest man alive, Isaac read the cover. Tabloids, Adam cleared his throat. Isaac flipped through the magazine until he came to the article on his son. It was a large spread of glossy photos of Adam reflecting different aspects of his life. One photo was of him frolicking in the ocean in Greece, yet another was of him playing soccer with friends. Another three were snapshots of him with different women. It seems you lead quite the playboy lifestyle, Isaac quipped, snapping the magazine closed and tossing it in front of his son. Perhaps if you'd spent as much energy on your work, we would sell a hell lot more units. What's the point? You never listen to my ideas anyway, Adam mumbled. Isaac turned on his heel. We have a meeting in ten minutes. Bring your ideas. Adam waited until his father left his office before picking up the magazine. A close-up of him graced the cover. Underneath the photograph was the caption, Adam Maitland, the sexiest man alive. Adam couldn't contain his smile. As a playboy, he had devoted his entire life to the pursuit of pleasure, and being coined sexiest man was sure to bring a lot of pleasure his way. Hey, Adam, come on, you don't want to be late. The old man is in a terrible mood. Adam looked up to see his best friend, Adam McLeod, standing in the doorway. Adam shrugged and tucked the magazine into his desk drawer. There would be plenty of time to read about how terrific he was. The Directorate of Science and Technology was the nervous center for national security. This department housed all the government's high-tech satellites and surveillance hardware, not to mention space-age weaponry. Victor Lomax leaned back in the plush leather office chair and spun himself around. It was a habit he'd had since childhood, spinning in chairs until he made himself dizzy. He seemed to think better when his world was all topsy-turvy. Confusion. He was surrounded by surveillance monitors, computers, hard drives, all technology used to keep the country secure in this new age. There wasn't much that went on in or out of the country that wasn't being watched, recorded, and analyzed. If the Republic of America didn't have enemies, there was enough scrutiny to create some. Vic, it's good to see you again. Lomax swirled in his chair to see an awkward-looking man walking toward him. Chip Wallace was one of the top analysts at the NSA. He had bright red hair with a buzz cut, which looked out of place atop his boyish face. Thick framed glasses magnified his intelligent eyes. Chip, Lomax greeted blandly. Tell me you have something for me. A president had never gotten away from me, and I don't want it to start now. Chip said, I got you covered. Chip took a seat next to Lomax and removed a disc from its case. This little baby will be the answer to all your prayers. He smiled as he slid the disc into the drive. I did some research. I felt sure our predecessors had implemented some sort of failsafe for such an occasion. And? And I found it. Get on with it, please. Certainly. Upon being chosen for the presidency, Jonathan Pierce was implanted with a tracking device. 
There's nowhere he can go that we won't know about. Lomax thought for a moment. When the multicolored image of a man appeared on the screen, his heart quickened. Wouldn't he know about the tracker? Nope. It was implanted during his inoculation. He is none the wiser. A series of holographic panels appeared on the screen. Vital statistics, blood pressure, heart rate, and temperature appeared in the upper left-hand corner of the screen. We're online, Chip whooped. In a few minutes, I will be able to tell you exactly where the president is. Good, Vic said, loading a fresh clip into the Glock. Have they decided on the next president? Chip asked. I'm sure they've already picked the poor bastard. Five-star General William Zapasnik sat at the head of the mahogany conference table in the basement of the National Security Agency. This was one of the most secure rooms in the world. It had to be. It's where the all-important decision of who would be the next president was made. Seven men, each a military general, sat around a table cluttered with Janilagi books, historical papers, and hospital records. The lineage of 44 presidents lay bare before them. From these 44 ancestral lines, presidents were chosen. Zapaznik held more power than any of these former presidents combined. He was the puppet master, the great and incredible Oz behind the curtain of the Republic. The 68-year-old was not born into such heights. He'd risen from the bowels of poverty to the ether of military generals. He was the MacArthur of his generation, and he had been smart enough to exploit it. Zapaznik had lived his entire life based on the teachings of Sun Tzu Wu's The Art of War, and every day he found a new enemy to strategize against. If there was a moment of tranquility in his life, he was unhappy. Men born of nothing, only to rise to rule. Have we narrowed it down? Zapaznik asked. The five men snapped to attention at the sound of his gravelly voice. We have twenty potentials, Major General Reeves answered flipping through his charts. That's not what I call narrow. Zapaznik's brushy eyebrows dove. I'm looking thoroughly at the Jackson clan. There are a lot of descendants with good, strong leadership qualities. Why don't we choose the one with the most royal blood? John Moorship wearily shoved the paperwork in front of him aside. Zapaznik dismissed the suggestion with a wave. Terrible idea. It's how it was done in the past. Oh, here we go again with the conspiracy theories, Reeves chuckled. What conspiracy theories? Zapasnik asked. According to David Icke's book, Bloodlines, every U.S. president has been from the same bloodline, Reeves assured. It's hogwash. It's not, John said hotly. Prove it, Reeves countered. John crossed his arms and glared across the table. Cut the bullshit. No one's leaving here until we have a candidate. Zapaznik said just as a junior officer silently appeared at Zapaznik's side with a cell phone. A call for you, sir, the officer whispered. Go away, I'm busy. I think you should take it, sir, the officer leaned in closer and mouthed the words, It's Lomax, in his ear. Zapaznik jerked the phone from him. You'll have to excuse me. Zapaznik rose from the table and exited. Zapaznik here. You'd better have good news for me, Lomax. Zapaznik paused to listen intently. The creases in his forehead smoothed. 
That's good news indeed. Handle the business, Mr. Lomax. Zapaznik ended the call and headed back to the conference room. They drove in silence, the nondescript van gliding smoothly down I-95, each man wrapped in his own thoughts. Badeau stared out at the unfolding highway, his mind immersed in the intricacies of a plan. Snyder sat in the back seat with a laptop, his fingers running furiously like a glissando. Jonathan wasn't sure what he was working on, but the fact that he was working so hard provided some comfort. Jonathan couldn't believe the events of the day. One minute he was lying on his bed waiting to hear his fate, and the next he was being rescued from the White House by a group of commandos. Now he was on the road, hurtling towards the unknown in the dark of night. His heart pounded so hard it felt like he was having a series of tiny heart attacks. His palms were sweating. The hair at the nape of his neck was soaked. Desperation weighed on him like invisible chains of iron, but he couldn't deny a gleam of hope was starting to sprout within him. He glanced over at Badeau. His angular face was set and determined. He'd driven for three hours straight without saying a word. Jonathan exhaled. If he had to trust his life to one man, Badeau would be the one. Do you think we could have a bathroom break? Jonathan asked. Badeau glanced at him in the rearview mirror. I'm sorry, I can go hours without taking a piss. Yeah, and some food too. Snyder chimed in from the back. Badeau drove off the road and pulled into McDonald's parking lot. Snyder slid the laptop in its case and placed it under his seat. Jonathan and Badeau got out of the van and stretched. Ah, oh, the smell of grease, Badeau grinned. You two go relieve yourselves and I will fetch us some burgers. Sounds like a plan. Jonathan said, rubbing his hands and heading for the entrance. Um, Johnny? Badeau motioned to him. Yeah? Try not to act so... presidential. Oh, right. The three men entered the restaurant, two diverging to the right towards the men's room and the other towards the counter. Jonathan covered his nose against the smell of urine. It had been four years since he'd used a public bathroom. He'd become accustomed to the finest of everything. He'd lost touch with common things and, more importantly, the common folk. What incentive would they have to keep him alive? Snyder was already washing his hands when Jonathan came out of the stall. Disgusting, Jonathan said, squirting a generous amount of soap in his hands. Better get used to it. If we are successful, this is how you'll be living, Snyder said, staring at his friend in the mirror. We have to get you to a safe place where all the technology in the world won't touch you. You've been working on this for a while, haven't you? Jonathan asked, drying his hands. I have for a long time, ever since the Republic adopted this barbaric system. When you were nominated, I did my research and decided you were the one. Chills scaled Jonathan's back. He reached out and gave Snyder's arm a quick squeeze. I caution you. Snyder added. I never thought this plan would work. Still don't. The two men chuckled nervously. If you don't believe, why did you decide to risk your life for me? Because I couldn't live with myself if I didn't try. Snyder gazed at him unflinchingly. And Badeau? Badeau is our only hope. When they emerged from the restroom, Badeau was at the counter flirting with the cashier. He motioned for Jonathan to come over. 
This is my buddy Reggie, Badeau grinned at the cashier. He's an impersonator. Badeau laughed heartily. Really? Who is he supposed to be? She asked. The president, duh, Badeau answered. Jonathan jerked away from him. There was a peculiar gleam in Badeau's eyes. The cashier laughed. He doesn't even look like the president. Badeau laughed. That's what I told him. After a few more minutes of inconsequential chit-chat, the three men made their way back to the van. What the hell was that? Jonathan fumed. What? Badeau asked, ransacking the bag of food. You practically gave me up in there. Badeau turned his black eyes on Jonathan. It was a test. It's called hiding in plain sight. Jonathan mumbled an apology, and the smile returned to Badeau's face. He handed out the food and hummed as they hopped back on the interstate. Ah, she wasn't too much of a bitch, Badeau said with a mouthful of food. She tossed in free apple pies. Adam took a deep breath before entering the conference room. He was the last to enter the room, and all eyes turned in his direction. The looks on their faces had become all too familiar. Despite the family's power and the fact his father had created this company, no one took him seriously. How could they, when his father made it clear he didn't exactly hold his son in great esteem? Adam slumped in his chair adjacent to his father and listened to the gaggle of men attempt to impress his dad. Each one dressed in a conservative gray Savile Row suit, each in varying stages of balding. Dressed in a gray cashmere sweater paired with charcoal-colored pants, not to mention a headful of thick Irish black hair, he stood out like a kitten at a dog park. Adam doodled in his leather portfolio. Fourth quarter numbers had dipped, but he was confident in his ideas to turn things around. His father would have no choice but to be supportive of his idea. As you all know, our last quarter results were abysmal. And I do mean abysmal. If any of you had any pride, you'd return your bonuses with interest. You fucking dropped the ball. What do you have to say, Jeff? Jeff Greenhouse briefly closed his eyes and seemed surprised to see everyone was still sitting there when he opened them. He looked around the table at the somber faces. They all glared back. Well, Isaac snarled. My answer to that, Mr. Maitland, is I believe we developed some pretty strong marketing campaigns around the products given to us. We secured prime shelf space in the stores. PR did a great job of getting the products in all of the maps. I don't believe there was a problem with marketing. Jeff threw a glance towards Adam's way. I believe the problem was with the products themselves. Heads swiveled in Adam's direction. Adam blinked in surprise. I am not sure I understand what you mean. Jeff opened his mouth to speak, but Isaac beat him to the punch. He is saying our products were subpar. You are the vice president of research and development. What do you have to say? Adam could feel the anger sprouting across his chest. How dare they insinuate that he was responsible for the previous quarter's dip in profits? It wasn't like he ran this ship alone. Hell, nobody could breathe without the approval of Mr. Isaac Maitland himself. I resent the implications. Adam turned a cool eye on Jeff. If you will recall, Jeffrey, your department provided the demographics of our target market. We created products specific to your segmentations. 
You were the tail that wagged this dog. An uncomfortable silence fell over the boardroom. Jeff Greenhouse stared down at his clenched hands. Adam glanced at his father, and for the first time in his life, he thought he saw a hint of pride. Well, Isaac cleared his throat. Now that we know where the blame lies, what are we going to do about it? Isaac looked around the table at his senior management staff. I have a plan I think will increase earnings for quarter one and beyond, Adam said. Isaac slowly turned to his son with a raised eyebrow. He clasped his hands together and pressed them against his thin lips. All right, Adam, since no one else has any ideas, let's hear it. Adam rose to his feet, flashing his trademark smile. In the past, we have focused our attention on the family market, educational games, video games, so on and so forth, but the market is saturated. I propose we step into a niche market, the adult market. Adult market? Isaac said blankly. Yes. Can anyone tell me what sells cars, beer, movies? Sex, the VP of finance announced. Exactly. We have been working on some sex-related games for the adult market. The room became a buzz with conversation. When can we see the prototypes? Isaac asked. I have one of the prototypes in my office. I can bring it to you after the meeting. It's a good idea, Adam, Isaac said, checking his Audemars Piguet. This meeting is over. But Isaac, I have presented the marketing plans for... Jeff Greenhouse started. Jeff, who gives a fuck? Isaac rose and marched out of the room without another word. Adam was in a great mood when he returned to his condo. His father had liked the prototype for the new game and had given him the green light to move forward with production. He'd even given Adam the added responsibility of product manager. Today's events had invigorated him. There was renewed passion to excel in his father's company. But there would be plenty of time for hard work. Now is playtime. He removed a bottle of Chateau de Chem 1995 Sauterne and placed it in the ice bucket. He began putting the finishing touches on his trademark chicken Milanese dish, a dish brought out for only the most beautiful of women. His new assistant, Renee, definitely fit the bill. He'd invited her over for an intimate dinner for two. If things worked out as planned, she'd be out of her clothes, in his bed, and out of the condo by 10.30. He grabbed a fork and tasted the chicken. Delicioso. The doorbell rang. Just a minute. Adam called out. He was putting the finishing touches on the two plates and lighting the candle on the table. Satisfied, he answered the door. Renee was even more beautiful after hours than she was at work. Her hair was pulled up in a chignon. Her silver eye shadow complemented her silver spaghetti-strapped dress and matching sandals. He could feel his excitement beginning to stir already. Renee, please come in, he grinned. Oh, you actually remember my name this time, she mocked, walking past him into the spacious living room. The floral scent of her perfume gave him chills. You look beautiful, he complimented. It was his habit to say this to every woman he planned to bed, but in this case it fit. Thanks, 
She smiled demurely while covertly appraising the luxury apartment. You don't look so bad yourself. Adam couldn't help but smile because he knew it was true. He looked good in a cream-colored sweater and a pair of chocolate-colored slacks. His hair was freshly cut, and he was wearing the latest Calvin Klein scent, which purportedly drove the women crazy. He watched her investigate his home. It was obviously a bachelor's pad, but he didn't care enough about getting laid to change it. There was no need to change. What Ms. Renee wouldn't do, there are plenty others who would, Adam said, coming to stand behind her. He tried to see the condo from a woman's point of view, framed vintage posters and black and white photos of nude women. Leather-bound comic books lined the bookshelf below a collection of vinyl records. This is very suave, she said, examining the black and white photographs of nude women hanging on his wall. I took them all myself, he grinned, lightly touching her shoulder. I'm not surprised, she said with a smile. Shall we eat? Adam ushered Renee over to the candlelit table and pulled out her chair. She glanced at him in confusion but silently took her seat. Adam trotted to the record player and put on a record. This is a real oldie. It's Marvin Gaye. Have you heard of him? Renee shook her head. Not much into old music. Renee answered, digging into the food. Adam raised a brow. Things weren't exactly going as he thought they should be. He took his place across from her and began to eat. By the way, she was wolfing down her meal. Adam assumed she liked his culinary skills. He hated it when beautiful women displayed ill manners. It tarnished the entire picture. You're enjoying it? He asked, watching her shove a forkful into her mouth. Mmm, Renee took a gulp of wine. It is delish. If only my girlfriend Sarah could cook like this. Adam blinked twice. Chateau de Chem, 1995. So Terrence was not meant to be gulped. I'm... I'm sorry, Sarah? Yeah, my roommate, Renee answered, shoveling more pasta into her mouth. Well, I guess there's no rule saying your roommate has to cook for you, Adam shrugged, sipping from his wine glass. Renee put her fork down and downed the remaining wine. Nope, but lovers should do nice things like that for each other. Adam spat out the wine from his mouth. Lovers? He choked. Yeah, Renee said. You do know I was lesbian, right? A cloud of cigarette smoke fogged the room, vexing the automatic air filter. Suit jackets were off, ties loosened, and tempers unleashed. Three hours after they'd begun, the seven military men were still in the closed conference room trying to decide on the next president. The records had been scoured, photos and statistics projected on the screen, and each one had been discarded. This is ridiculous, John Morship grumbled. He had proposed the most qualified candidates, and each one had been shot down. You have something to say, John? Zaposnik asked. Just that it shouldn't be this difficult to make a decision. All of these people are educated, relatively charismatic, and somewhat intelligent. Let's just pick somebody. Zapaznik's thin lips stretched into a smile. I have an idea, Zapaznik said, putting out his cigar. How about we take a five-minute break? I think we can all do with that and stretch our legs. The men all stood to leave. John, do you think I might have a word? 
Zapaznik asked. John Morship stopped in his tracks, his face losing pallor. The other officers refused to look at him. I was hoping to get a snack before we returned, John mumbled. I could use a snack too. Do you mind if I walk with you? Morship shrugged. The two men walked down the empty corridor to the vending machine. Morship surveyed the offerings while fishing coins out of his pocket. Do you know what you want? Yeah. Zapaznik grabbed the back of Morship's neck and slammed his face into the vending machine. Morship grabbed his nose as it spat blood on his pale blue dress shirt. You broke my nose, Morship exclaimed, backing away. Now that I have your attention. Zapaznik removed a handkerchief from his jacket pocket and handed it to Morship. Now, John, when we walk back into that conference room, I want the whining to stop. It gets on my fucking nerves. So let's try to change that, okay? Morship stared at him. Zapaznik turned his attention to the machine and inserted two dollars into the slot. I think I'm in the mood for peanuts. What happened to you? One of the generals asked Morship when they returned to the conference room. John had an accident at the vending machine, but he'll be all right, Zapaznik answered. Won't you? Morship averted his eyes. Well, I think we should get back to it. I think we've found our boy, General Kamal chimed. He passed a folder to Zapaznik, a photograph and a stat sheet. Adam Maitland. Maitland? Zapaznik examined the photo. What line is this? Bush, Kamal answered. Zapaznik's hand trembled slightly. He tossed the photo and stats sheet on the pile in front of him. Don't think so. Next, Zapaznik said. What's wrong with Maitland? Kamal asked. General Reeves reached for the information Zapaznik had tossed aside. I think for once, we should choose someone who at least appears to be capable of running a country. This guy's a fool. Kamal glanced at the others around the table. Did you even read his stats? This guy's a winner. He's bilingual, athletic, competitive, and Hispanic. He's another John Kennedy, for heaven's sake. He looks good to me, Will, Reeves said, passing the stats on to the other members. He too, Latin, Zapaznik said weakly. Besides, the last thing we need is a playboy president. How would you know he's a playboy? Morship smirked. I'm a very good judge of character. The dossier on Adam Maitland made its way around the table, each member nodding in agreement after reading Adam's biography. Put him on the screen, Reeves said. A blown-up photograph of Adam Maitland's graduation from Brown University appeared on the screen. Beside the photograph were bullet points accentuating the milestones in his life. What a pedigree. You could go all the way back to Alexander the Great if you want to, Kamal said, looking in awe at Adam's ancestral tree. He's not a bad-looking guy either, Reeves commented. Zapaznik shifted in his chair. I think he's perfect, Morship said through the handkerchief. Let's vote. A vote was taken. All were in favor except General Zapaznik, who abstained. The decision made, the men hastily signed the decree and left the room. Zapaznik sat alone glaring at the photo of the next president of the Republic of America. He removed his cell phone from his jacket pocket and dialed a number. Ike, it's Zapaznik. I have news. 
Adam listened to Renee prattle on about life with her girlfriend, all the while thinking of ways he could get rid of her without inviting a lawsuit. He smiled at the thought. Another lawsuit would drive dear old dad over the edge. The thought made him chuckle. It's not funny, Renee said sharply. What? I just told you my gerbil died in the garbage disposal. Oh, sorry. You laughed. I didn't. You did. No, I was thinking of something else. You know everyone around the office said you were a jerk. I should have listened. Renee, don't you think you're overreacting? Renee rose from the table. Overreacting? Overreacting? I can't believe this! You asshole! I quit! There's one problem solved, Adam thought, following her to the door. They were both stunned to see the Japanese woman standing on the other side of the door. Kimura, Adam breathed. Before he could utter another word, Renee slapped him and stalked down the hall. Looks like another successful date, Kimura smiled, walking into the condo. Adam followed her into the living room. His penis, which had withered in the face of Renee, was starting to recover. Kimura Yi was a high-powered journalist at the top of her profession. She'd been a tough investigative reporter whose tenacity and nose for the truth had won her an anchor spot at the ripe old age of 28. Her shapely legs hadn't hurt either. At one time, she'd had ambitions to be Mrs. Adam Maitland, but even her persistence wasn't enough to curb Adam's philandering ways. She'd ended their on-again, off-again relationship a month ago, but they had remained friends. It was just dinner, Adam smiled weakly. Kimura took in the candles, the empty bottle of wine, and remnants of chicken Milanese, and smiled. Marvin Gaye wailed in the background about sexual healing. Adam followed her gaze and groaned inwardly. She's my secretary, Kimura. Kimura turned to him with a sly smile. We both know you wouldn't indulge in an affair with a secretary. Adam said, she's gay. Kimura shrugged, switching it off. Adam began weighing the odds of getting her into bed. So, why are you here? Adam asked, trying hard to ignore the stirring in his pants. She plopped on the sofa and kicked off her shoes. Sometimes I think I work entirely too hard. Her tongue slipped through her parted lips and slid across her bottom lip. I am in desperate need of relaxation. Bingo. Those were the words that got his soldier's attention. What about Todd or Tony or whatever his name is? Adam asked, joining her on the sofa. Tim, and I got rid of him a week ago. It seemed he was better at pumping iron than pumping, well, you know. Kimura smiled coyly. She placed a manicured hand on his thigh. Adam groaned. A flashback of Kimura's thighs constricting around him made his throat convulse. I never had that problem, he whispered in her ear. Kimura giggled. No, you haven't. Her hand crept across his thigh, landing on his swelling cock. Shall we take this into the bedroom? You lead the way. Kimura rose from the sofa, unbuttoning her blouse exposing a little Victoria's secret. The blouse drifted to the floor and sashayed into the bedroom. Adam blew out the candles and followed her into the bedroom. 
The caravan of black SUVs sped down the interstate. Inside the third vehicle, Lomax carefully unwrapped a stick of gum. He frowned with concentration at a palm-sized GPS system resting on his lap. He absently rolled the gum foil between his fingers. Something's not right here, Lomax said. Chip looked up from his computer system. What do you mean? He asked, craning his neck to see the GPS. It's not giving real-time positioning. It's like there's some kind of delay. Chip said, We had to activate the tracker inside the president. This is the first time this technology has been necessary. There are some bugs to work out. Are you saying this thing doesn't work? Lomax looked at him blankly. No, no, it works. It just needs to be calibrated. I am working on it as we speak, Chip said. Fix it, Lomax said, tossing the gum wrapper at him as his phone began to ring. He glanced at the caller ID and rolled his eyes. It was Zapasnik. Lomax here. Where are you with the hunt? Zapasnik's gravelly voice emitted from the phone. We are a few hours behind them at the most. Good. I need this thing to come to a conclusion soon. I want that boy's blood on the television by the end of business tomorrow. Capture him fast before it is leaked that we lost the son of a bitch. We'll have him before moonrise. You'd better. Zapasnik disconnected the line. Lomax slammed the phone down. I think we might be able to do a little better than Moonrise, Chip smiled. We've pinpointed a location. It took Lomax and crew 20 minutes to arrive at the McDonald's the president had only left merely hours ago. Lomax hopped out of the back seat of the SUV with two photos of Jonathan, one in color, the other black and white. He entered the restaurant ahead of his entourage and bullied his way to the front of the line. A large trucker grabbed him by the arm. You can't just bust the line like that, the trucker said, shifting his bulk closer to Lomax. Lomax automatically sized the big man up, six foot four, maybe taller, and three hundred pounds. The right side of his face was scarred from a poor stitch job. This guy had been through some battles. Look, I got official business, Smokey, so hold your horses, okay? Lomax glanced down at the man's hand still clutching his arm. Now take your damn hand off of me. The trucker wasn't impressed by official business. He tightened his grip on Lomax's arm and tried to swing him back, but Lomax sidestepped and kicked the trucker in the groin. The trucker bent over in pain, and Lomax lifted his knee, smashing it into the trucker's nose. Blood gushed forward, quickly pooling on the floor. Lomax released his hold on the trucker, allowing him to drop to the floor. The customers backed away, staring at Lomax in amazement. Lomax's crew entered the restaurant seconds later. Chip noticed the trucker wallowing in his blood on the floor. Five seconds and you're already kicking ass? Lomax shrugged. I told him it was official business. After the dust settled, they interviewed the restaurant staff and were confident they were on the trail of the president. The three exhausted outlaws arrived in Greenville, South Carolina, eight hours after their journey had begun. At first skeptical about his chances of escaping the government, Jonathan was energized with confidence. His self-assurance had grown with each mile that distanced them from Washington. All that was left now was to get on a plane and get the hell out of this country. He glanced over at Badeau. 
the rugged warrior had driven the entire way without as much as a yawn. He was superhuman in his capacity to go without food and water. Jonathan couldn't help but admire his toughness. I think we should keep on until we reach the airport, Snyder said, coming awake in the back seat. He stretched and yawned, then automatically reached for his laptop. I think there's less chance they will try something in a crowded public place. Badeau's jaw tightened at this suggestion. He glanced in the rearview mirror at Snyder and then smiled. He could turn that awe shucks grin on at will, Jonathan thought. That's a good idea, Virgil. But I don't think it would hurt for us to get a motel room and catch a few Zs. The flight isn't for five hours. And to be honest, I'm bout exhausted. Badeau flicked another glance in the rearview mirror. What do you think, Prez? Jonathan glanced back at Snyder, then at Badeau. How far behind us do you think they are? He asked. Snyder consulted his computer. I've been jamming their satellite signal, but if they've confiscated commercial satellites, we may be in trouble, and they may have uploaded an anti-jamming satellite. In which case... Can you explain in English? I don't understand, geek. Badeau grinned. Snyder rolled his eyes. I don't know how long it'll be before they find us. Badeau waved the warning off. I know these government types. They can't get their elbows out their asses. We have time for some sleep. The debate ended when Badeau drove off the highway and headed to the closest motel in the vicinity. Badeau volunteered Snyder to buy the room, reasoning he would be the most inconspicuous. They got a double room. Badeau went back to wipe down while Jonathan and Snyder headed to room 214. Stale smoke greeted them when they opened the door. It was a generic 75 or a night double. Two beds, a table, television, and a bathroom. The heating unit was a few feet to the right of the door and rattled 760 air from deep within its metal confines. The room was decidedly not befitting to the president. Jonathan kicked off his shoes and clicked on the television. The cartoon channel was showing a bloody battle fantasized with animated characters. It didn't take long for Jonathan to become lost in the television war. Snyder brushed his teeth and then plopped on the bed with his laptop. He'd brought several other foreign-looking technical gadgets with him that Jonathan didn't recognize. Fifteen minutes later, Badeau knocked on the door, and Jonathan got up to let him in. I wouldn't just open the door like that if I were you unless you want to find yourself in a body bag, Badeau said, brushing past him. The mercenary's mood had obviously taken a turn for the worse. Jonathan closed the door and secured the locks. Badeau removed a pillow and blanket from one of the beds and made a pallet on the floor. He switched off the television. Hey, I was watching that, Jonathan said. You don't have time to watch Cartoon Wars. You're in a real one. If I were you, I'd get some rest. Snyder looked up from his computer to study the two of them. Jonathan looked to him for support, but Snyder simply shrugged and returned to his computer. Badeau removed his shirt, revealing a back and torso with every inch of skin etched with tattoos. Ink covered every inch of his muscle-bound frame. He lay down on his pallet with a grunt, and within seconds, he was snoring. Jonathan debated whether or not to switch on the television again, but didn't think it was worth pissing the mercenary off. The sleek limousine pulled smoothly outside Nanks, a dimly little bar that encouraged privacy. 
Zapaznik exited the car before the chauffeur had a chance to open the car door. He looked up and down the street before disappearing inside the bar. Zapaznik stood inside the door, giving his eyes a chance to adjust to the smoky interior of the restaurant. Heads lifted quickly and ducked back down just as quickly. The smell of whiskey and secrets permeated the air. Zapaznik glared from table to table until he located the person he was there to meet, sitting in a darkened corner. How's it going, Ike? Zapaznik asked, sliding into the booth. Isaac Maitland looked up from his drink. All right, I guess, Isaac answered, taking a swig from his glass. What's up? Zapaznik removed his glasses and wiped them down with a nearby napkin. A blonde waitress with a toothy grin stopped by the table to take Zapaznik's drink order. He ordered bourbon and smacked the waitress on the ass as she walked off. Your boy's number came up today, Zapaznik said flatly. He placed his glasses back on his face and watched for Isaac's reaction. There was none. Isaac nursed his drink in silence. When will they take him? Tomorrow morning. I wouldn't try to warn him if I were you. The boys they'd send after him can get pretty rough. I wouldn't do anything like that, Isaac replied, downing the remainder of the drink. Zapaznik chuckled. The waitress arrived with Zapaznik's drink. Her smile had lost its luster. He tried again to smack her retreating bottom, but she managed to skirt away to avoid him. Bitch, Zapaznik muttered, sipping his drink. Isaac lowered his head in his hands. I did everything I could, Ike. The consul wouldn't let him go. He doesn't stand a chance. He's never had to make a decision in his life. Isaac's voice trembled. God help me. I'm sending him to the wolves. Zapaznik sat back annoyed by Isaac's weakness. You know the alternative, Zapaznik said, downing his drink. I can't stand this. I gotta get out of here, Isaac said, starting to rise. Aren't you forgetting something? Zapaznik stared coldly at his friend. Sorry, I forgot. Isaac reached into his jacket pocket and handed Zapaznik a brown envelope. Zapaznik jerked it from his hands, glancing around before opening the envelope. He looked inside at the cash and nodded. Sleep well, Ike, he said, watching his friend exit the restaurant. Kimora awoke with a start. She strained her eyes against the darkness of the room. Adam lay snoring softly beside her. There was a deafening silence. She lay against the pillow, and then the bedroom door came crashing down. Twelve men wearing all black stormed into the bedroom with semi-automatic weapons at the ready. Kimora jumped from the bed, screaming. Adam sprung to his feet, naked with fists balled. Adam squinted against the cyclical beams streaming from the flashlights trained on him. Red beams dotted his chest. He reached over to turn on the bedside lamp, and a bullet exploded, sending lamp fragments flying. Kimora fainted. Help her! Adam yelled, racing toward her. A trooper stepped into his path, and Adam smashed his fist through the visor of the helmet, dropping the trooper to the ground. He kneed the next one in the groin and connected a roundhouse kick to the throat. He was grabbed from behind in an armbar that threatened to break his limb. On your knees, the soldier ordered. Adam was inches from Kimora when the butt of the rifle knocked him into darkness.